Let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for all the wonderful teachers and those who share here at Lakeside and even their opportunities that they get even around the world to teach and to proclaim your word. And we thank you for that. We pray for the persecuted church uh, who are uh, able to stand up amidst so much turbulence and hate. And Father, we just thank you for our freedoms that we have here, even though we have a lot going on in this country, Father, we are still so much better off than many parts of the world, and we want to thank you and not to take our freedom for granted. We pray for this time this morning that you would bless it, Father, bless me and give me a good, clear uh, speaking this morning that I won't be a distraction from your word and that those who hear can put into practice the, your word so that they may be drawn closer to you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, if, if you're like me, you might be a little apprehensive about the state of our country right now. I hear people laughing, so it's, I don't think I'm alone. When I look around and I wonder and, and compare where the state of our country is today to where it was when I was a child, it's almost impossible to see how far we've fallen in a relatively short period of time. It kind of appalls me, you know, what's happened in the last 30 or 40 years. And I know with the presidential election going on right now, everybody has kind of got it on the top of their minds. The issues are so many and they're so big. When you think about the immigration, the economy, terrorism, the racial tension, national debt, monetary concerns, the Supreme Court... And it's not just economic or political, it's first and foremost morally. When you think about where our country has the path it's taken over the last several years, it seems like on every front we're turning away from God. Higher education has become an enemy of conservative Christianity. Since 1973, we have aborted almost 60 million babies. We have witnessed a serious decline in the moral standards. Our movies are becoming more and more lewd. Pornography is rampant. Crime and violence in our cities is on the verge of being out of control. Sometimes when I watch the news, it's like we're in a third world country. And yet it might be just down the street. And in all this, sometimes if you're like me, you might wonder, where is God? What's he doing in all of this? I have to admit that sometimes I am... Perplexed is the word I chose. And it's not just the state of the country that perplexes me. As many of you know, my daughter and son-in-law just got back from Haiti visiting their adoptive son. It was a great time, and yet it was also very painful. I would use the word torturous as they got to spend two weeks there and with him and bonding with him and seeing the conditions that he lived in. And then they had to leave and come back without him. And it might be anywhere from eight months to a year before they get to go back and get him because it takes so long for them to process and do whatever it is they have to do. So it breaks my heart and I wonder, why has God, why does God allow that? Why doesn't He speed the process up? And I'm sure I'm not alone. It leaves me perplexed. Well, this morning we are going to look at an account of a man of God that was perplexed as well. Circumstances of life had left him in a place that he, where he was questioning God. 
wondering about what God was doing. You could say that he was perplexed. So our study is going to be in the book of Habakkuk. If you know right where that is, then you're doing better than most. It is what Bible scholars call one of the minor prophets, and you can find it right after Nahum and before Zephaniah. That's all the help I'm going to give you. Uh, I'll give you a couple of minutes to get there, though. And if you got the little tabs in your Bible, then you are cheating. I think if we're all honest, there are times in our life when we all have questioned God. It might be a serious illness. It might be a wayward child, a difficult marriage, financial hardship, loneliness, state of the country. We just can't figure out what God is doing, why He's doing it. And it leaves us perplexed and wondering. And it's hard to go through things like this. Contrary to what some believe, we don't come to Christ and everything is better roses. And our hearts and our attitudes don't always align themselves in the way that we know they should. Sometimes we're left with questions. And I think that's okay. But be encouraged. You're not alone. I'm not alone. Even the great Old Testament prophets went through times like this. And that's one of those occurs in the book of Habakkuk. We're going to go briefly through the whole book this morning. Again, it's being that I only get to teach once. I don't want to leave us in the middle of it because we need to see what happens in the whole book. So we're not going to look at it verse by verse, but we will hit the highlights of it and hopefully we'll see the way to go from being perplexed to praise. That's the title of this message, going from perplexity to praise. That's what happens in these three short chapters. We're going to see Habakkuk beginning in chapter 1 as a man with questions. And in the end of chapter 3, we're going to see a man praising God from perplexity to praise. So to refresh our memories... What do we know about Habakkuk? Well, we really don't know hardly anything outside of what's in this short book. We know that he was a prophet in Judah during the reign of Josiah and his son Jehoiakim. Josiah was a pretty good king, and ever since his death, though, the reforms he had instituted had been forgotten, and Jehoiakim had been leading the nation closer and closer to disaster. So as we begin, I want to turn you, have you turn over to the book of Jeremiah. Keep your finger in Habakkuk so you don't lose it. And turn over to Jeremiah 22. And I want to read verses 13 through 19 to give a backdrop, a little bit of information on the reigning king of the day. I'll start in Jeremiah 22 and verse 13. It says, Woe to him who builds his house without righteousness and his upper rooms without justice, who uses his neighbor's services without pay and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a roomy house with spacious upper rooms and cut out its windows, paneling it with cedar and painting it bright red. Do you become a king because you are competing in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice with and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He pled the cause of the afflicted and needy. Then it was well. Is not that what it means to know me, declares the Lord? But your eyes and your heart are intent only upon your own dishonest gain and on shedding innocent blood and on practicing oppression and extortion. Therefore, thus says the Lord in regard to Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they will not lament for him. Alas, my brother, or alas, sister, they will not lament for him. Alas, for the master, or alas, for his splendor, he will be buried with a donkey's burial, dragged off and thrown out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. So this gives you some insight into the kind of leader that Jehoiakim was. 
The country was in bad shape under his leadership. And this is the environment where we find Habakkuk as we come to our study. And in chapter 1, we're going to see why Habakkuk was perplexed. I'll begin by reading verses 2 through 4 of Habakkuk, chapter 1. It says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear. I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. So what were some of the things that troubled Habakkuk? Out of these verses, what do you see? What was he upset over? Violence. No help. No help from who? God. That's what he's saying. Wickedness, destruction, strife, contention, laws being ignored, no justice. Does it sound familiar? He wants to know why God is not doing anything about it. In his mind, it was like God was not hearing his cries, his prayers. They were going unanswered, or so he thought. He thought God was indifferent. He wants to know why God hasn't judged the sin of the people. He thought he knew God, but he didn't understand why he hadn't acted. He was struggling with what he thought was God's indifference. In verses 5 through 11, God does answer him. I don't think it's going to be the answer he was looking for, but let's read verses 5 through 11 and see God's answer. God says, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days. You would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Now the Chaldeans is another name for the Babylonians. That fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence and their horde of faces move forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty, those whose strength is their God. So he gets an answer. I don't think it was the one that he was looking for, but he's told, God says, I am going to judge sin, and it's going to be the sinful Babylonians that are going to be doing the judgment. I don't think that's what Habakkuk was expecting. He was now more perplexed than ever. I thought about that. I, I wonder what he was expecting God to do. And I thought about our situation, you know, in our country and the things that we're going through. And are we asking for judgment? That's what Habakkuk was doing. He was expecting it because he knew God judges sin. I think about revival. I want to see revival in our land. And I, th I thought about this. I thought, well, we need to be careful in speculating what God should or should not do. For his ways are mysterious and far higher than our ways. And Habakkuk was not ready for the answer that God gave him. He's more perplexed now than he was before. But there's a great lesson to learn here when things are not going as you planned. When you are troubled, even with God, when you are perplexed on every front, 
And I've already alluded to it, but there's something significant in this story, and that's that Habakkuk began the story questioning God, wondering what he was doing, and he's going to end up praising God. And I just want to skip over there to the end briefly just to show you this. Flip over to chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, and let's read how he finishes his book. Chapter 3, verse 18 says, Yet I will exalt in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hind's feet, or some versions say deer's feet, and He makes me walk on my high places. Here we see in the end that He's going to be praising the Lord. So what we want to do this morning is to see exactly how Habakkuk dealt with his perplexity and how he ended up in the place of of praise. And we're going to see three courses of action that led to his moving from perplexity to praise. Three courses of action. First action I want you to see is actually his inaction, what he didn't do. I want you to see what he didn't do. And what Habakkuk didn't do was he didn't lose his faith. He had doubts, but he never went to unbelief. I said earlier it was okay to be perplexed, but it's not okay to question God to the point of abandoning your faith or concluding that God is not good. Habakkuk had questions for God and he asked them, and I think we can do that too. But the thing we do is we still cling to our faith. We still embrace our God. Do you know what Habakkuk's name means? When you look up the meaning of names, in a lot of Old Testament times, the names were very significant. His name meant to embrace or to wrestle. And that is what he did. He did both. He wrestled with God and he embraced God, even in the middle of his perplexity. And that's what we need to do. When we are confused about what God is doing, we don't run from God. We run to God. We might wrestle with things we don't understand, but we also embrace God. So how come he never lost his faith? Verse 12 tells us why, I think. Verse 12 is very significant because... And here's why. I think is what he does is that he reminds himself of who God is. Look at verse 12. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. So the second course of action that we see here is that Habakkuk reminds himself of who God is. He reminds himself of attributes of God. And the first one I see here is that he reminds himself that God is eternal. He says, are you not from everlasting? I think in his mind he was thinking about the Babylonians. He was familiar with them. The Babylonians had many gods. They worshipped the sun god, Nagal, the god of the sky, Anu, Ea, the god of magic. They had their idols and their emblems of gods that they worshipped. And Habakkuk knew he worshipped the one true God that was real and was eternal. And why is that truth that God is eternal important in times of confusion and doubt? What does it mean? It means that God is outside of history. God was here before history began. And he's going to be here after what we call history is gone. He creates history. He's not a part of it. So doesn't that make you feel better when you don't understand what things are going on around you? When you try to figure out what Russia is doing, asserting itself again, when you read of the atrocities of ISIS or the violence in some of our inner cities, when you watch things like this, you need to remind yourself that God is not in history. He is writing history. He's outside of it. He's eternal. Then he says, 
my Lord, my God, my Holy One. Here he is reminding himself that God is holy. God is not only eternal, but he's holy. What's that mean? That means that he's righteous, that he's always right. He can do no wrong. He's reminding himself that God cannot do wrong. Whatever he is or isn't doing is right. No imperfections. We have a problem, I think, sometimes understanding that because as, as humans, we struggle with what the right thing to do is or the best thing to do is. God doesn't struggle with that. Everything he does is right. God being holy means he's perfect in thought, in deed, in action, or in action. We can question why, but we can question whether it's right or not. So when you look around at the things going on in our country, the things going on in your life, remember that God is holy, that He's right. The third thing I see here is that He reminds Himself of God's faithfulness. He says in verse 12, We will not die. This terrible thing getting ready to happen at the hands of the Babylonians might be horrible, but it's not going to end in death, at least not in the death of everyone. Why not? Because God has made some promises to them and to His people, right? They're a chosen people, and God has promised to protect them and make them a great nation. He's not going to let them be wiped out like so many of the other people have. So Habakkuk reminds himself of that, and we should remind ourselves of the promises of God and His faithfulness. He never goes back on his word. Habakkuk reminded himself that God was eternal, that he was holy, that he was faithful. And then he reminds himself that God is sovereign. He says, You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. He's reminding himself here of God's sovereignty. God is able to do whatever he wants to do. I don't think it's right. I don't understand why you're allowing the Babylonians, this sinful people, to be the judge of our people, your people's sin. But God, you are sovereign. You are able to do whatever it is you wanted to do. And aren't you glad of that? If he wants to use a more wicked people to judge us, that's God's right. He's sovereign. As I thought about this, I thought about the book of Job for some reason. Job questioned God. You remember Job questioned God. He didn't lose his faith, but he questioned God. And do you remember God's answer to him? It's a big, long answer. Chapter 38 of Job, if you want to turn there. I think it's worth going over there and seeing. Chapter 38, the heading in my Bible, says God speaks now to Job. And it actually runs for chapters, but I'm just going to read a couple of excerpts. Chapter 38 of Job, after Job is done speaking, the Lord says in chapter 38, verse 1, He says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know, or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and the sons of God shouted for joy... Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth? It went out from the womb. When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and a door and I said, Thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here you shall proud waves stop. And he goes on, all of verse 38, all of verse 39, all of verse 40, all of verse 41. All of that is God's answer to Job saying, 
Who are you? I am God. I can do what I want. And I think it's also interesting at the end of all of that, after God quits talking, one of my favorite lines in the book, in chapter 42, well, let's start in verse 4. He says, Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes sees you. He's heard about him all of his life, and now he sees him after going through all that he's gone through and hearing God's response. And that's, I think Habakkuk has that thought in mind as he reminds himself of the sovereignty of God. And that God, if he wants to do something I don't fully understand, he's saying, okay, I get it, you're sovereign. So what was the first thing Habakkuk did to deal with his perplexity? He didn't abandon his faith. Then the second thing he did was that he reminded himself of the truths of God. He fell back on truths that he knew about God were true. But this alone hasn't satisfied him completely. The answer from God satisfies the question about God's indifference. He was not indifferent. He was going to judge wickedness, but the Babylonians, he's still struggling with this. He was going to judge sin with an even more sinful people. And this still didn't sit with him. He's more perplexed. He relays his concerns over this in verses 13 through 17. I'll read verse 13 of chapter 1 still. He says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up? So you see here that he's not lost his faith. But he's still struggling, even with the answer that God has given him. He wants to understand, but he, he just he's not there yet. Have you ever thought like that when you think about things that are going on in the world or even the things going on in your own life? You know that God's eternal, that He's holy, that He's faithful, that He's sovereign. You know these things, and yet the things going on around you still cry out, Why? Why, God? I don't understand. Show me what you're doing. What's this all about? I think that's where Habakkuk is. He's not praising God yet. He'll get there, but he's not there yet. And so he does something else we need to take note of. He didn't abandon his faith. He reminded himself of attributes of God. And the third thing he does is that he waits and watches for the Lord. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Here we see that Habakkuk went and he stood on his guard post. He stationed himself, it says, on the rampart to what? To watch. In essence, he was waiting on God's reply. I don't think this meant he literally went up onto a watchtower. He may have, but I, don't, I think... In these times, what was a watchtower? A watchtower was a high tower that men would go on up on to look out over the city to see an enemy approaching and be able to warn the city before it happened. But I think it was a, a watchtower could be a high place, high above everything, a place of quiet and tranquility above the bustle and noise of the city. And as I thought about this, I'm not sure that he actually literally went there. It may have been a place that he went to in his heart and his attitude and as I studied this, I was reminded of Pastor Steve's sermon back not too long ago on Psalm 73. This was a psalm recorded by Asaph, and it was about his bewilderment and struggles over the fact that he was witnessing the wicked prosper and many of God's children were suffering. It's very similar to what we are seeing here. Turn over, if you would, to 
Psalm 73. We'll look at just a few verses of this to refresh our memories. Psalm 73, let me read verses 1 through 5. Asaph says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, as I, was, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. You hear that Asaph was suffering in the sense of he was struggling with what God was doing. He saw suffering, God's children suffering, and he saw the prosperity of the wicked, and he struggled with that. It didn't seem fair to him. Skip down to verse 16. Verse 16, he says, When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. He was perplexed. He didn't understand why God would allow this. But look at the next verse. Verse 17 says, Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. It says that he went into the sanctuary, and there he waited on God, and God gave him the answers that turned him around. God enlightened him to the fact that these wicked men might seem to be prospering, but their end was going to be damnation and that's that's basically what he was saying that gave asap the perspective that he needed to not be jealous anymore and that's just kind of like what's going to happen to Habakkuk. i believe Habakkuk's watchtower is his sanctuary and we all need a place like that we don't necessarily have a sanctuary or a temple or a watchtower to go to but we need to have a quiet place a place where we can retreat to and speak to god and to listen for him to speak to us. I don't really honestly know whether that was a place or not, but it really doesn't matter. We need to have an attitude that he had as far as going, seeking God, and waiting for God to speak to us. And that's what's important. He prayed and it waited and he listens for God's voice. Turn back to Habakkuk chapter 2. Let me look at verse 1 again. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. I think the end of verse 1 is important. Habakkuk goes into his sanctuary to seek God. He expects an answer, doesn't he? He says he's going to keep watch to see what he will speak to me and then listen to what he says. He says, and how I may reply when I am reproved. Now, there's different renderings here. The New American Standard, which I read, says, when I am reproved. And I'm not sure. Some of the versions don't say reproved. It just says, when he answers my complaint. But it almost sounds like in the NSV that he's expecting a rebuke. Kind of like what happened with Job. I'm not sure which is exactly correct. But it's obvious, though, and the important thing, I think, is that he expected an answer. He wasn't going to just sit and wait. He was expecting an answer from God. And I think that's what's important here. And I want you to overlook this. I'll stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me. He expected an answer. He didn't know how. He didn't know when. He didn't know what the answer would be. But he was expecting God to answer him. In Hebrews 11:6, the writer says, And without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. When you seek God, we should seek expecting an answer. 
And in verse 2, God does speak to him again. God's answer to Habakkuk comes in verse 2. Let me read verses 2 through 4 of chapter 2. He says, Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision, inscribe it on the tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. So here we see God speaking to Habakkuk, and he gives him an answer. And he tells him three things that I see in his answer. He tells him, number one, that he's going to give him a vision. Number two, that he tells him to record and write it down. And number three, he tells him to wait, to be patient. It's going to come to pass at the appropriate time. So God does speak to Habakkuk. He allows him to hear his voice. Now, how does he speak to us today? Most of us aren't hearing him speak to us verbally. We hear him through his word. We may hear a small, still voice, as some people describe it, but it's primarily his word speaking through scripture to our hearts. He was also told to write it down. The writing it down part was instrumental for all Christians for all time because it continues to minister and give instruction thousands of years later. But I think for Habakkuk to write it down also gave him a certainty about the prophecy. Writing it down meant there's there's a written, it's going to, you know, I think of what the king said when they would say something about writing it down, let it be written. It, it's going to come to pass. There was a certainty to that. This was real. It was certain. In verses 6 through 20 of chapter 2, we're not going to read all of it this morning uh, for lack of time, but in these verses, God describes to Habakkuk the wickedness of the Babylonians and how he was not withholding justice and they would eventually be punished. God would punish evil. If you skim these verses, you will see several woes pronounced on them. But in the middle of this, God does make a statement I want you to look at. Look at verse 14 of chapter 2. It says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In the midst of all this talk about the Babylonians and their, how bad they are, he's gonna, he says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is not the way it's going to be forever, he's saying. It may look like the enemy's winning, but it's not always going to be like this. He gives him a vision, he commands him to record it, and he tells him to wait on it. The word wait in the Bible is an interesting word. Sometimes it means exactly that, to wait, to be patient, to do nothing. But most of the time, it actually can be interpreted hope. There are places in the Bible where both are used, depending on your version of the Bible that you have. For instance, Isaiah 40, verse 31, where it says, Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. You know that verse. That is sometimes, in some Bibles, translated wait. Sometimes it's translated hope. Those that hope upon the Lord. So when we wait on the Lord, it's synonymous with hoping in the Lord. Hoping in the Lord is being confident that God will bring about the future He has promised. I've ran across a quote by John Oswell, who's an Old Testament scholar, on that idea of waiting on the Lord. He said it implies two things. A complete dependence on God and a willingness to allow him to decide the terms. Oswald says, To wait on him is to admit that we have no other help, either in ourselves or in another. It is to declare our confidence in his eventual action on our behalf. Thus, waiting is not merely killing time, but a life of confident expectation. 
And I like that term, confident expectation. So how does that apply to us? Does that mean you need a job so you pray and then you sit back and wait and do nothing? Or you would like to be married so you pray that God sends you a spouse and you sit in your apartment alone every night praying that they're going to knock on the door? (laughs) Or you have a serious illness, instead of seeking treatment, you go into your sanctuary and pray God to heal you and don't go to the doctor? Of course not. I don't think that's what waiting is. I think we can patiently wait on the Lord and still be active. We can wait on the Lord and be filling our applications and resumes or visiting the doctor. You can be searching for a spouse while you wait on the Lord. It's an attitude of being willing to depend upon the Lord, to place our hope in Him, and to accept what He has for us, to allow Him to set the terms and the timing And we can do that as we are active in serving and living for him. So when Habakkuk began writing, he was down in the valley. He was struggling. He was perplexed about what God was doing. Then he climbed higher. He stood on the watchtower waiting for God to reply. And God did. He spoke to him. He gave him a vision of what was to come. And he gave him a glimpse of his glory. And now comes chapter 3, the prophet's praise. Chapter 3 is a prayer. It's also a song. Habakkuk is now singing and praying to the Lord, not arguing with Him. And it becomes a prayer of praise and worship. We only have enough time to hit a few highlights. Verse 2 of chapter 3 says, Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. The NIV says, I've heard of your fame and I stand in awe of your deeds. Habakkuk has seen a vision of the greatness of God. In verses 3 through 15, he recounts God's greatness on display in several occasions in the past. I think that's important for us to remember how God has worked in the past. Habakkuk was facing the fact that people were about to be invaded by a merciless enemy. Many people are going to be killed and carried into exile. The land's going to be ruined. The temple destroyed. And yet Habakkuk will trust him no matter what. Look down to verse 16. He says in verse 16, I heard my inward parts trembled. At the sound my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. That's what's ahead of him. He's doing what? He's Walking by faith. Walking by faith means we are willing to wait on the Lord to have an expectant confidence in what He is doing in our history, no matter what the circumstances. Verse 17 and 18, he says, I'll rejoice in the Lord. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, then again, verse 18, Yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in my God and my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and He has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on high places. As you think about this, you can picture it from His viewpoint. Buildings are going to be destroyed. Wealth plundered. Farmlands and orchards devastated. Probably their women raped, men killed, families split apart. There's little to sing about when you think about that, but that is what Habakkuk's doing. Why? Because God is still on the throne. God is in control. He's holy and just. 
and he's working out his divine purposes for his people. Habakkuk can't rejoice in his circumstances, but he can rejoice in his God. He ends in verse 19 by saying, The Lord is my strength, and he makes my feet like hinds or deer's feet, and he makes me walk on my high places. He is saying, though, everything seems shaky. My feet are firm. I can bound up the mountain like a deer. In conclusion, I've said it before, and this won't be the last time, I'm sure, but I really feel like that God in His wisdom, as I contemplate where to go or what to study in Scripture, He always leads me to passages that are designed for me. It's only my hope that someone else benefits. The passage was especially meaningful to me because I have to admit that sometimes I struggle and I'm perplexed by what God's doing, the way He does it, the timing. I just get perplexed. I shared at the beginning about our grandson in Haiti, and I have to admit, I don't understand why God allows it to take so long. That really perplexes me. It also perplexes me when I see so many people struggling, even here at Lakeside. Two weeks ago, in church, I was brought to tears, and I don't usually do this. It's not my normal thing. I try not to be very emotional, but I was overwhelmed by the suffering that many of our members were going through, and just a matter of 30 minutes or so, I had interactions with two couples who have a wayward daughter that is bringing much pain to their hearts. I hugged a brother who is hurting, who's struggling with serious family issues. I sat down in front of a man who's had serious health issues for years, and I've prayed with him and for him for many years, and God has not chosen to answer those prayers in the way we want it to be prayed. I also had a, another brother that um, he's just going through horrendous, painful things with his family. And then I uh, sat down and the man right in front of me, you all know, has a terminal condition. And I, he was too weak to stand as we were singing praise songs. And his wife sat down next to him halfway through the second song and held his hand. And I was, just, I was brought to tears. And I couldn't hold it back. I was overwhelmed by the amount of suffering that's going on just in a little circle around me in a period of 30 minutes. And I can't explain to those parents with wayward children what God's doing. I can't tell those hurting brothers when or if God's going to change things. I can't tell my friend with the terminal condition exactly why God's allowing him and his wife to go through this. And I'm not even going to get into the political economic mess that our country is headed for. I'm surely perplexed by it all. It leaves my finite mind spinning sometimes. And I don't know the reasons. I just cry out to God, why? But there are a few things I know for certain and I can tell them and I can tell myself. I can tell them what not to do. Do not abandon your faith. Turn deeper to it. Embrace it. God has not left you. He cares. He, he's there. I can tell them and I can tell myself to do what Habakkuk did. Remind yourself that God is eternal. That He existed before creation. He isn't a part of history. He's writing history. He's writing your history. I can tell them that He's holy and He's righteous and everything that He does is perfect even when we don't understand it. That He's faithful. That His words are true. And He's sovereign. Everything has a purpose. And after you've done these things, I can tell them to just... Go into their sanctuary and meet God and listen for what He's going to tell you, to watch and to wait. Have an expectant hope in the Lord 
Many times people know all the right things intellectually, but they don't pray with an expectant hope. Live by faith, not feelings. In chapter 2, verse 4, there's a phrase that really sums this up. Chapter 2, verse 4, the second part of verse 4 says, But the righteous shall live by faith. In essence, when we don't know what God is doing, that's all we can do. Forget what the world's telling you. Disregard what your feelings are saying. And just embrace God. Remind yourself of who He is. Trust that He will work everything according to His great and marvelous will. Then enter your sanctuary. Go up on your watchtower and wait for God to speak. Have a confident expectation in how He's going to answer and what He will do. And when you have done that, God will bring you to the place of praising. He will turn your perplexity into praise. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the examples of men in your history, Father, that uh, give us comfort and encouragement. Men like us who question what's going on in their world and in their life. And Father, you answer us. You speak to us through your word and you calm us down and you remind us of who you are. And Father, we just take trust and faith in that fact. And even when we don't understand, we know that this is a temporal short life and even if things don't work out the way we would want them to father it's fleeting and father your will is being done no matter what goes on in the course of the world and in our lives that your will will not be thwarted that you are sovereign and in control and we take great comfort and peace and we rest in that help us to draw close to you and further from the world's ideas and thoughts and just be wrapped up in your love and embrace you the way Habakkuk did. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.